Well, good evening. Glad to see you all here tonight. Tonight's our first night at the new time slot at 6 o'clock, so I'm glad somebody was paying attention. Uh, perhaps everybody else did, but they just couldn't make it tonight. We'll get used to it one of these days. Uh, but we're glad to be here, um, and this schedule is going to coincide with Team Kid when we get started with that, so hopefully that'll be an opportunity then for some parents who uh, desire to be a part of this to be able to come and join us on Wednesday nights as their kids are going to be over at Team Kid. Uh, in your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians as we'll continue there in chapter 1. right after Philippians. We're continuing now with what all that is related to Paul's prayer for the Christians in the church at Colossae. And this whole first section um, of chapter 1 is Paul writing about how he prays for them. And when we finished verse 9 last week, we saw that Paul indicates that he prays for them without ceasing. He is especially thankful to God for their salvation, for the fruit that is being produced in their lives um, because of the gospel. And we ended last week with Paul telling the people that uh, when he prays for them, he asks God to cause them to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And to be filled has the idea of being controlled by something. We talked about that last week. So, in other words, Paul is asking that the people's lives would be controlled by knowing the will of God through wisdom and understanding that only comes by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not about some spiritual feeling uh, or an out-of-body experience or a supernatural download, as some people might say. The Spirit of God granted these things to Christians back then through the Word of God, and He still uses the same means today. We should not seek to go outside of those means. How do Christians live their lives? In obedience to the Word of God. And that's what Jesus commanded when He sent out His followers to make more disciples. He doesn't mean to go out and get people to say some words Right, to pledge to be part of a club, Jesus said to make disciples by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. And where has he commanded us? In the Bible, and just the Bible. Paul told the Corinthians not to go beyond what is written. He didn't want them to go beyond what was written. It's important for us. So tonight we want to look at the specifics of what Paul knew would be the results of God answering his prayer for the Christians at this church. And let's read our text for tonight, and then we'll ask God to give us ears to hear. Colossians chapter 1, verses... I'm going to start in verse 9, even though we did 9 last week, but for context, verses 9 through 12. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, 
and increasing in the, in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to knowledge, or I'm sorry, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come, gather together around your word, Lord, to be taught by your word. We thank you for the preservation of your word for all these many centuries, Lord, that only you can do. And Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that your word is truth. And we ask tonight that you would open our eyes, that you would give us understanding. Um, and Lord, that it would not just be knowledge for our brains, but Lord, application for our lives. And we, we pray that these things would be learned, these things would be done for your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what we, what we have in verse 10 tonight are the results uh, when God grants an answer to Paul's prayer for Christians. Okay, what did he pray for in verse 9? That they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Remember that we, we said Paul meant what he meant by wisdom and understanding. The word for wisdom here has the idea of being able to collect and concisely organize principles from Scripture. And the word for understanding that he used here speaks more about the application of those principles to our everyday lives. It's not just that we would know something, but that we would apply it and live by it. Wisdom is not of much use unless we apply it to our lives, is it? We see a pattern of effects that the Scriptures have in the lives of people, beginning, of course, with the relationship between hearing the Word and salvation. That's the, that's the starting point. And Paul described the effect of the Word of God for salvation in Timothy's life when he said that the sacred writings, or Scriptures, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He said that in 2 Timothy 3.15. The, the people Paul is writing to are Christians, okay? We've, we talked about that before. They're, they're already having been made wise for salvation through the Word of God. Now we get to the ongoing work of the Word in the lives of Christians moving forward. It's what Paul is after when he asks God to grant them knowledge. They're already believers. Now he wants them to have more knowledge, to grow in that. The gaining of knowledge in all spiritual wisdom and understanding is what he said. The obtaining of and the application of the Word of God in our lives. And in our text for tonight, we see three outcomes of God granting knowledge in all wisdom and understanding. These three outcomes or results hold true for the life of every believer for all time. And therefore, we should pray for these things as Paul does. The three results of Paul's prayer being answered would be this, living a life worthy of the Lord, which brings him pleasure. That would be the first one. The second one would be being strengthened with all power would be another result. And the third one is an attitude and pattern of thankfulness to God would be the third point. So let's look at verse 10 for the, for the first result in our passage here. Verse 10 of chapter 1 of Colossians. 
It says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, of course, for context, when Paul says, so as to, we have to think, I mean, if you just started there, you wouldn't really understand what's going on here. What's he talking about? So you'd have to go back to the previous verse um, to find out what he means when he says, so as to. He means, so that you can, or in order that. Okay, you get, you get your car fixed so you can drive it, right? You read the instructions so you can put the table together. And God grants knowledge with wisdom and understanding so you can walk in a particular way. That's the point Paul is making here. Okay, that, result, that resulting walk is in a manner, he says, worthy of the Lord. And Paul says this is fully pleasing to God. And what, is, what does Paul say this walk looks like? The Christian bears fruit in every good work and increases in the knowledge of God. So, in our study of 1 John, we defined the biblical concept of walking as Paul uses this term here, and in other places of Scripture, we see this same term used. Remember, that is a reference to your daily way of life, right? The pattern of living that is evident from day to day in your life. It's a way of referring to how you think and what you believe and how you speak and how you conduct yourself in private or in public. It's what God expects from His people. Leviticus 18.4 says, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. So as Christians, when we sin and displease God, does that mean we're no longer Christians? No. right? We, we've hindered our fellowship with God temporarily, but Christians will repent and be restored before too long. What is your pattern of living? It was, was King David a great guy all the time? No. Wasn't he a murderer and an adulterer? Yet what did God say to David's son, Solomon, about his father's walk? Didn't he use his father as an example? He says in 1 Kings 3.14, And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. How, of course, this is not an excuse for us to sin. Hopefully nobody would read that and go, oh, well, I can sin and God will still lengthen my days, right? It's not an excuse to sin, but to show that our pattern of life is important. David's pattern when he did sin was to repent and to be restored by God. He knew he had grieved God. What does the unbeliever do? They continue in sin without repentance, loving the darkness rather than the light, and showing by their pattern of life that they are not children of God. We, we just saw this in 1 John. So as Christians, we're told to have a different pattern of life. That is to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. In Ephesians 5.15, and Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Our walk is important. Our pattern of life is important. And the goal when, when we as Christians fall to sin is restoration. And it's a part of our sanctification. Remember that your sins have been forgiven. 
And the Scripture tells us God is faithful to forgive His children. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is how a guy like David can still be seen as walking with God. Even though we know all the bad things about him written in the Scripture. I mean, it's a good thing we don't have all the bad things about our lives written in some book that people can read, right? Uh, this is how, also how you and I can still be seen as walking with God through repentance, a turning from sin back to God and being restored. Unbelievers don't do that. What does this worthy walk look like then, more specifically? A Christian is as we see in our passage there, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. These, Paul says, are fully pleasing to God. And the Scriptures are packed with the, the idea and the command to bear fruit and to walk in the way of the Lord. And let's be clear, we're talking about good fruit as opposed to bad fruit, right? We're, we're dealing with good fruit here because there is such a thing as bad fruit. But I wanted to ask another question. What is the difference between doing good things and bearing fruit? What is the difference between doing good things and bearing fruit? Okay, the motivation for doing them? For sure, could be that. Anything else? Other thoughts? Okay. Yeah, who gets credit for it? Yeah, I think that goes, it's kind of tied with motivations for sure. Can't, can't unbelievers do good things? Yeah. Um, unbelievers and believers both can do good things, but doing good things doesn't necessarily produce good fruit. Bearing fruit indicates the production of something as the result of an action of some kind. And this, in this sense, it's a good thing. And we know from Scripture that when unbelievers do good things, according to the world, those things are they're not seen as good by God. They're filthy rags. Right? We can't do good things apart from God. Here Paul says that the action is good works. Some examples of fruit that Christians bear. Making, making disciples. We've been talking about this on Sundays. Right? Making disciples as a result of sharing the gospel. And the disciple is the fruit of the gospel. How about a brother or sister that repents after a, a godly rebuke over sin? Well, uh, repentance and restoration would be the fruit of that rebuke that, that has produced something in the life of that believer. Praise from the lips of God's people is described as f the fruit of thanks in Hebrews 13, 15. Can a person truly be a Christian and never produce fruit? Think about that for a second. Can a, can a person truly be a Christian and never produce fruit? No. Yeah, it, it can't. Let's, let's look at a passage here in John. If you'll turn there with me. John chapter 15. This is good for us to understand. As there are many people who claim to be believers, <clears throat> yet you'll never see any, any evidence of that. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. 
This is Jesus speaking. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There's two very clear statements in that passage regarding the production of fruit that will answer the question about whether a person can truly be a Christian and not ever produce any fruit. First, we see in there that there can be no fruit if the branch is not connected to the vine. We see that in verse 4. There can be no fruit. That's a statement of fact. No fruit if a branch is not connected to the vine. Jesus is the vine, and we are branches in that analogy. And the second thing we see, the second statement there that answers this question is, if the branches are connected to the vine, they will bear fruit. Okay, in verse 5 we see that. True Christians will, in fact, bear fruit. So, we see that the bearing of fruit is completely tied to being in Christ. And it, it, uh, it describes the Christian as necessarily bearing fruit because of this union with Christ. John doubles down on this biblical truth just three verses later uh, when he says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. A worthy walk also means increasing in knowledge of God. To increase in the knowledge of God is to grow. Right? Spiritual wisdom comes from knowledge of God. The more knowledge you have of God, the more you mature in spiritual wisdom. There are many ways in which Christians can grow in the knowledge of God. Really, the idea is that you, you go from infancy to adulthood. In, our li- in your life as a Christian, at whatever point you came to faith in Christ, from there on, you're starting as an infant in Christ, and you progress on to adulthood. You go from milk to meat. You go from immaturity to maturity. And Christian growth comes from holding fast to the head of the church, which is Christ. From whom Paul says in in Colossians 2.19, the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. We need to remember to think this way, that any knowledge... And growth that you have as a Christian, this is easy to take credit for, isn't it? Because I studied, I read, I searched the Scriptures. It's I, a lot of eyes there. But we need to understand that um, any growth that we have or, um, or making our walk increasingly worthy of God comes from God. It comes from God Himself, not from our own strength, which it's very easy for us to, to want to do things in our own strength or try to do things in our own strength or take credit for certain things. This brings us to uh, result number two of God granting what Paul prays for for the believers at Colossae, and that is being strengthened with all power. Okay, look at verse 11 in, in our Colossians 1 passage here. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Okay, not 
not physical strength. How many of you have gotten physically stronger by the power of God? <laughs> That's not what he's talking about, not physical strength. This is spiritual strength. Okay, the, the Greek word here has the meaning of, of strengthening in an ongoing sense. It's not a one-time deal. It's not like taking a bottle of no-dose to stay awake or a shot of adrenaline that'll wear off eventually. You know, we don't grab a can of spinach like Popeye and, and strengthen up for a, a brief time. God strengthens His people in an ongoing way, and He is always near and always at work within you. We remember that. We are, as believers, indwelled by the Holy Spirit who gives us power. Here Paul is calling for them to be strengthened with what he says is all power. Not only that, but he says what the source of that power is, it is according to whose glorious might? God's. It's according to His glorious might. And Paul makes very clear that we live and work according to a strength that comes from God, not from ourselves. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The author of Hebrews asks that God would equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is working. God is strengthening. We don't take credit. Okay. Well, according to verse 11 in our passage, then, why do we need spiritual strength? According to verse 11, why do we need spiritual strength? For endurance and patience. And then there's a third one on there at the end of that, for joy. Okay, what? You think about that for a minute. Endurance and patience and joy. Why do we need those things? Why do you need those things? What's that? To keep you going. Okay. Okay, so the work, the visible work of God in someone's life, as you share the gospel, it can bring you joy, right? I mean, ultimately, we need endurance and we need patience because of life. And we can each individually sit here and think about why, why do I need endurance? Why do I need patience? And the two words used here are closely related, but they're different. Okay, the, the word that he used here for endurance, uh, some of your Bibles might say steadfastness, it has the idea of being patient in circumstances. Okay, think about circumstances. So when he uses those, that first word there, it's dealing with patience in circumstances. And the word that he used there that's translated patience, it has the idea of being patient with people. Okay, so we have two different things here, circumstances of life and people in our lives. I think we can see the difference there, and I think we can all relate to difficult circumstances and difficult people being a reality in our lives. And it couldn't be that you're ever a difficult person to someone else, right? And we also have difficulty with ourselves as sinners. And Paul prays for this in their lives because they need it. You and I need it. Endurance and patience. Okay, he needed it. 
Now, something really important for us to get here is that we are, we are not merely to go through life grinning and bearing it, right? Uh, or holding our breath, gritting our teeth as we, as we go through all the circumstances of life. And what does the last part of verse 11 indicate that we're strengthened to have as we endure with patience? Joy. Are you joyful when dealing with trials in life? Are you joyful when enduring the effects of sin in in a lost world? Doesn't this world that we live in, doesn't it encroach on our minds weigh on our, our minds, weigh on our hearts, not only our own sin, but the sins of the world that we have around us, causing perhaps doubts, sometimes causing depression or cause us to be ineffective or to respond to hardships sometimes by sinning ourselves in, in frustration or whatever it might be. I mean, this is a hard place to be. It's a hard place to live, made harder by, uh, by becoming Christians. God doesn't promise us a life of ease. When we associate ourselves with Christ, we can expect suffering beyond what the world the world suffers. Unbelievers, believers alike, we all suffer the same things, but believers suffer additionally by being associated with Christ. And how is it possible to endure difficult circumstances and difficult people with joy? Paul gives. I think if you want to turn to Ephesians 3, Paul gives a wonderful expression here um, where this power comes from. Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 21. Where does this power come from? Why, why is it to be desired? He talks about what it accomplishes and what its ultimate outcome is in a prayer that he has for the Ephesian church. So let's look at that. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. This is Paul talking here, and he's writing to the Ephesian believers. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We should hear those words and understand then why Paul would say in our text tonight that that there's a third result of God granting this request that he prays for, for the church. And look at verse 12 back in our Colossians passage. It says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, so according to verse 12, why should we give thanks to the Father? 
What's that? Why should we give thanks to the Father, according to verse 12? Okay, yeah. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has forgiven our sins. He saved you. You have an inheritance, a hope for the future and for today. Thanksgiving is the response. Thanksgiving is it's evident in God's people, God's people's prayers throughout Scripture. Uh, it's evident in, in Jesus Himself. Jesus showed us by example that thanks should be given to God. In John 6.11, it says, Jesus then took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish and as many as they wanted. Now, you and I haven't prayed and created more food like Christ did, but we have an example here, and sometimes we even skip the idea of giving thanks to God for a meal, for the, the simplest of provisions. And John eleven forty one and 42 says that the scene of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead it says, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. He's giving us an example of thanks, not only of an example of who he is as the Messiah, as God himself, but that even he gives thanks to the Father. Thanksgiving was one of the things the angels standing around the throne said would be ascribed to God forever. Revelation 7.12 saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And on the flip side, we see that a lack of thankfulness is a mark of unbelievers. This shouldn't be the mark of believers in the midst of even the most difficult of circumstances, we should be giving thanks. Paul talked about unbelievers in this regard, in people's worship of the creation rather than the Creator, in Romans 1.21. He said, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The unbelieving world does not give thanks to God. They look around, and whatever they see, it just exists, or it just came about from a big bang or something. They don't give thanks to God. And 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and the list goes on and on and on. But we see there, ungrateful is, this, is a pattern of the unbelieving world. We don't want to be like that. And so this prayer of Paul's and calling for this knowledge of God and wisdom and understanding, the more we know about God, we should be giving more and more thanks. Is there, is there a time, a, a circumstance, an emotional state of mind, a point in life where we would have reason or freedom to not be thankful to God? Can you think of any examples? Nobody wants to answer that one. Even if you thought there was a, a circumstance, you wouldn't want to say it. But it's true, there isn't. There, there is 
No time, no circumstance. You think of the worst possible thing in your life. There's never a time when we should not and could not be thankful to God. Scriptures make that clear in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says, give thanks in a couple of circumstances. Everything. All circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know the will of God? Give thanks to Him in every circumstance in life. That is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So are you thinking of it right now here? The circumstance in life, that circumstance which you're not being thankful to God for, it's really hard. You don't fully understand it. You can't see the end of it. It's hard, isn't it, to think about being thankful to God. But what is God doing in those trials? What is He doing in the difficult circumstances of our life? He's, he's training us. He's disciplining us as sons and daughters. He's sanctifying us to become more like Christ. We need to be thankful and ask God in those difficult times. Ask Him to help you, strengthen you. That's what Paul's doing here. He's praying for the people. God, give them this strength, endurance, the joy. All of it comes from knowledge, not a feeling, right? You're you're not trying to conjure up a feeling. This is based on knowledge of God, and that's what Paul's praying for. And most of all, of course, is our thanks to God for salvation. Thanks due to God for what He has done in the life of every Christian. What has He done? He gave an inheritance. He gave deliverance. He gave transference from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. These things are, are listed here in verse 12 and are a cause of giving thanks to God. But before we talk more about those things, we look at what Paul says God did first to make those three things possible. The three things we've talked about tonight. What did he... uh, And it's because we give thanks to God the Father who has qualified you. That word qualified is important to focus on there. Qualified. And that that word that Paul used there, the Greek word that he used there, means to, to make sufficient or to make fit. Think about that for a second when it comes to your own life and comes to your salvation. What it required of God to qualify you was you needed to be made sufficient or made fit. And clearly then the implication is that we were unqualified. We were unfit. We were insufficient. That was, our, that was the starting point. And so we have to really think about that word he's using there. And giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. We need to think about that. He qualified me. I didn't qualify myself. He qualified me. And what are some scriptures maybe that come to your mind that indicate our unqualified state before you were a believer? Can you think of scriptures that would indicate that that you were unqualified? Unqualified for heaven. Unqualified for that inheritance. Any scriptures come to mind? What's that? There you go. Yeah, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. That's the one I have. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul's describing the the believers in Ephesians, their state before salvation. You were this. Mm -hmm. Oh, you want me to read it? (laughs) Yes. I I thought you were going to read it. Uh, right, Right here in Colossians 1, verse 21, And you who were who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Wow. He qualified you. You notice in these passages, there's no sense in which you did something to be qualified. This is is a work of God in the lives of people. What had to happen then to make people qualified or sufficient or fit to be inheritors, to be delivered and transferred? What what had to happen to make people qualified? Any thoughts on that? I heard the word repent, absolutely. Surrender, yeah. Yeah, so uh, an acknowledgement of sin this idea of repentance, surrender, I think go together there because we're surrendering our own ability to do anything when we repent of our sin because we've realized the depth of our sin. And ultimately, the big thing that had to happen in order for us to be qualified is Christ. Christ had to go to the cross. Christ had to be our substitute to atone for our sin to bear the wrath of God that belonged to us, that we earned. He took it upon Himself in order that we would be qualified by God, not by our own merit. And that's why those words are important, where He says, thanks to the Father. Thanks is going to the Father who has qualified you. And He did so through your repentance and faith in Christ. He's calling on the people here, um, to remember that and to give thanks. And they are strengthened to do so by their continued growth and knowledge and the wisdom that God gives them. Every time we, as we continue to grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding, we understand more and more uh, what God did. We understand more and more the lack of merit on our own part. And as we understand that more and more, our God is elevated in our lives. Our worship is elevated. We are man, we have a lower view of man, a higher view of God as we grow and learn in, in knowledge of God. And he says, um, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The saints, who are the saints? They are Christians. The scripture refers to the, to the saints. It's talking about Christians, those who are in Christ. They are set apart from the world to God. And in light means, means two things, truth and purity. There's the idea here. Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And if you flip right back to Ephesians again, uh, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, looking at verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10 says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, 
For the fruit of light, we're back to talking about fruit again, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, again, we're using those words there about pleasing God. This is pleasing to God. What is good and right and true? The Word of God. And what is this inheritance that he wrote about that we've been qualified for? What is the inheritance? What's that? Heaven, eternal life, right? We've been qualified for eternal life. That is first and foremost what should come to our minds when we think of that inheritance. Jesus said, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. How would you describe the difference between eternal life and endless existence? What do you, how would you describe the difference? <laughs> One's boring, okay? Any other thoughts on that? One produces joy. Okay, I would assume you mean eternal life. Yes. Yeah, eternal existence, that sounds terrible. Because we think of our existence right now in this, in this world, and I can't help but equate that if someone were to say eternal existence, I'm thinking about like right now. Like I don't want to exist like this forever. That would be terrible. But eternal life... When we as Christians know what life truly is, according to the Word of God, eternity with Him in a, in a joyful place, and that eternal life includes all of God's promises, such as abundant life, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. It's a new heavens and a new earth. We don't have all this sin and, and wickedness and everything around us, and it's not tempting us anymore. Imagine that, life without the temptation to sin anymore. Won't that be wonderful? We must remember that there is a guarantee, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What a great promise that is. Those things are a lot to benefit from, and God grants those things to every believer. And Paul is praying for these people, for the believers in Colossae. Um, he's praying for them, praying this for them. Praying for them not, not because God won't give this to them, but because his prayer is an expression of agreement with God, that God does this and is doing this in the lives of every believer. Okay, we have to understand that. Paul, he's not praying for something and God's, God's not planning on granting knowledge and wisdom and understanding, but, but because Paul prayed for it now, okay, I'll, I'll give you guys that. God does this through his Holy Spirit in the lives of, of every believer. But Paul praying this prayer is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty over it and acknowledging and agreeing with God that this is necessary, this is important for every believer. And so he's praying that prayer for the people, and we should learn from that. That is a prayer to pray for ourselves. It's a prayer to pray for other believers 
as well. So when you think about praying for each other, think about these things. So pray for, uh, for knowledge and wisdom and understanding through the Spirit of God for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for yourself. Uh, we should pray in such a way as, as, we, as we can see in the results of Paul's prayer when God answers that prayer for every believer. There are good things that result from that. We benefit greatly from God granting these things that Paul is praying for, and he's praying that for these believers. And so we're, that's our study for tonight, but next week as we continue, we're going to finish up this section, the first section of chapter 1 with verses 13 and 14, but they're tied to, to the next portion. And this, as Paul gets going here, he's getting into the person of Christ. He's, he's beginning to elevate Christ and draw our attention to the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ. Uh, in, so the next several weeks, we'll be, we'll be looking at all that he has to say about that. It's really good stuff. And he focuses, as I said in the introduction, on the deity of Christ. That's a very important thing because of the false teaching of the Gnostics that were coming into the church. Um, and so he's drawing their attention back to Christ, who is the head of the church. So let's close in a word of prayer tonight. And then if you'd like to stick around, we have a time of Q&A. Uh, for anybody that wants to stay. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for tonight and for, um, for your word that we've read. I pray, Lord, that we would reflect on these things. This prayer of Paul's for asking you for knowledge for believers, for all spiritual wisdom and understanding Lord, that we can grow in knowledge of you in our lives changes everything. It, it should change our perspective. It, it should continually draw our attention back to the cross, back to our salvation and this inheritance that is laid up for us in heaven that brought, brought Paul so much joy as he thought about these believers that he was writing to. It should bring us joy. And I pray, Father, that you would help us through your Spirit with all power, according to your glorious might, Lord, in our difficult lives and our difficult circumstances, whether it be health or relationships, work, ongoing sin, whatever it may be in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need, Lord, continue to discipline us as your children, strengthen us, Give us endurance and patience. We pray these things, Lord. We want to please you. We want to walk in a manner worthy of you. And we thank you for the ability to do so through your strength. May you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.